if you travel 90 miles west on I-40 from Wilmington, right after you cross I-95, you come to a rest area. And I know that for because from 1995 to 2001, I traveled that road once a week to Southeastern Seminary in Raleigh to get my master's degree. And often I'd have to leave at 4.30 in the morning. And because classes started early in the morning there, and I didn't want to spend the night. So I got up, 4.30, hit the road, and by the time I got 90 miles up the road, I needed a little break. And I knew that was coming, so I might lean my chair back and take a nap. I might walk around the car. I might get something to eat or drink, and then I would drive on to my destination. I wanted to stay alert. I didn't want something to happen, so even if I wasn't particularly tired, most of the times I stopped. And one morning, as I was getting back on to the highway, it was still fairly early, maybe, you know, 6 or 6.30. Not a lot of traffic, and I noticed that a car was sort of coming up on the left-hand side. It was maybe going a little bit faster than I was, so 75 miles an hour maybe. It's a little black Toyota truck. And as it came past me, it started moving off into the median. And all this happened very quickly, but I thought, I think they're going to take a turnaround here. They're not going to wait for the next exit, but they're still going 75 miles an hour. It's hard to turn around in the median at that speed. They didn't have those wires, you know, that that they have now. And then I noticed he started moving back into my lane back across the highway, and as all this was happening, I realized the guy's falling asleep, or whoever's driving is falling asleep. And they got to the middle of the highway, and I guess they woke up. And I don't know, hopefully you haven't had this experience, but if you've driven long enough, you nod off, and when you nod off, there's this moment of panic, like you're going to run into something, you know, and so you kind of jerk the wheel. And uh, with 75 miles an hour and the person woke up afraid, they jerked the wheel back and forth. And the torque created this uh, momentum that lifted the car upside down. So it's traveling off to the right side of the road. And as it travels, I'm right behind it. And unbeknownst to me until this moment, somebody in a sleeping bag was in the bed of the truck. And so they come out as the car travels over, and I stop, and I'm the first one to run to the scene. A body's come to rest in the middle of the highway. The cars come to rest upside down on the side. And not being alert, not thinking clearly, not not taking an exit that you should have taken uh, can be disastrous. One person fell asleep, but it damaged not just two other lives, but the lives that were connected to those lives. And as a person in full-time ministry for the last 25 years, I've witnessed quite a few collisions, quite a few disasters. And they're equally as dramatic. Somebody comes in and they have a moral collision, a relational collision, a financial collision. And one person's failure, one person's 
failure to, to stay alert, one person's failure to think clearly uh, creates a ripple effect. It, it never stays just in the person. It's always uh, waving out to, to a, a spouse or a family. It could happen to a church. The waves could break out into a whole country just because some people are not alert to what's going on around them. And our pastor for this series and for this morning is the Apostle Peter, and he is got first-hand experience of not staying alert at a critical time. He knows what it's like when the, the adversary is around, when, when it's critical that you, you, you have the clearest thinking, that you, you're absolutely on your toes, you're absolutely alert, and, and the, the problems that ensue when you fall asleep at that moment. He's aware. He's personally had that experience. And it doesn't just stay with him. It ripples out in areas. And so here, he's aware of that, and he's looking at his first century congregation, he's aware that there's going to be trials, that there's going to be an adversary, and he's trying to encourage and exhort his congregation to, to stay awake. Because in verse 8, we see that, that we have an adversary, the devil or Satan. He prowls around like a roar, roaring lion seeking someone, seeking some family seeking some church, seeking some community, seeking some nation to devour. And Peter doesn't want his congregation to get devoured, so we see in the text four disciplines, four exhortations, four commands. And, I, and as I thought of it, it's like a fortress. This, these are the things, the walls that you want to have built around you so then... You have the attack. You're you're aware of what's going on. You you create some safety. You avoid becoming devoured, and you'll see them clearly. Number one, be sober-minded. Number two, be watchful or be alert. It may say in some of your versions. Number three, resist by standing firm in your faith. And then finally, in verse ten, you have a hope. Be sober-minded, be watchful, resist, and have hope. And before we look at these four, before we examine these commands of Peter, I think it might be helpful to go back and just provide a brief explanation about the devil. Because some of us might come from a context that we've heard certainly about the devil, but we don't really know scripturally what that means. And so just in a way of a brief overview, we know from Genesis 1-1 that God created everything. We know from Colossians 1-16 that through Christ God created things in heaven and on earth, things that are visible and invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities, all things were created by Him. So, so God created both men and angels, and angels are sometimes referred to in the Bible as holy ones, spirits, thrones, authorities, and other names. They, they are living spiritual creatures, and they have the capacity to exercise moral judgment. In other words, the, the angels have a capacity to sin, and we know that from 2 Peter chapter 2, where Peter says, God did not spare angels when they sinned. 
And somewhere between the creation of the world and Genesis chapter 3, some of these spiritual beings, some of these angels refused to obey God, and they were led by one particularly powerful angel, sometimes thought of as an archangel, somebody who was a ruler over other spiritual beings. And he is known as Satan, which means adversary, which is why we're using this term here in First Peter. Sometimes known as the devil, Beelzebub, the serpent, or the ruler of this world with other names. Satan's primary task now is to destroy or to devour, to devour the work of God. Jesus says about the devil in John 8, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. See, he's out to destroy. He's out to devour. He's not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He is a liar and he is the father of all lies. So just as Satan prowled around in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, looking for Adam and Eve and looking to devour them, he prowled around in the wilderness a few thousand years later, looking for Jesus, looking to devour Jesus. And Peter is aware that we still have an adversary. We still have this enemy and he's still on the prowl and he's looking to devour. And Peter's use of this imagery isn't accidental. When he's been talking about the the shepherds of the flock in Genesis or in First Peter five, and that there are shepherds; those are elders. And then there's a flock. That's the congregation, and he's aware of that imagery, and so he knows that if a lion gets around a flock of sheep and just roars, what happens to the flock of sheep? They they often just scatter in a in a panic. They, they run around frantically and, and either they become isolated and away from the shepherd and so they're easy prey or they, they run away from the lion's roar thinking they're getting away from the lion, little, no, little aware that there's a trap set by other lions that they're running right into. Hungry lions don't just frighten. Hungry lions don't just wound. Hungry lions devour. So as shocking as my opening illustration is, it's meant to help you see there's disaster that can happen. And it can happen to you because you're unaware, you're not alert. It can happen to you because somebody who's leading you, somebody who's around you is not alert and they're creating this kind of disaster that you have to face for yourself. First century Christians wouldn't be unaware of this picture. Many of them had been rounded up and where had they been taken? To a coliseum only to be to watch their friends get devoured by lions. Lions have a quiet approach. You often don't realize you're next to them until you're just about ready to be devoured. Peter would be aware of this. Peter standing at a campfire during the trial of Jesus, getting devoured by the questions of a 12-year-old girl, completely unaware until it was too late. So if the imagery is disturbing, it's 
the thought of being devoured makes you feel uncomfortable, then Peter's, Peter's imagery is having its desired effect. Because, because when we talk about the devil, we're not talking about a man in a red suit with a tail and a pitchfork. We're talking about somebody who's bent on your destruction, that's bent on the family's destruction, that's bent on a church's destruction, that's bent on the community's destruction, that's bent on the nation's destruction. It's not some fancy little term. But finally, and most encouragingly, Peter says, and we read this before in 1 Peter 3.22, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Jesus. And then John writes in Revelation 20.10, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beasts and the false prophets have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the Bible assures us that Jesus has authority over Satan. And we don't live in some sort of dualistic, constructed world where there's good versus evil. And we're just hoping that the good sort of overcomes the evil. We know the good has overcome the evil. We know that all power rests in Christ. And we know that everything is at His feet. And He operates solely in charge of all things. And He has authority over all things. So at the end of this timeline, Satan and all of those who side with Him will be thrown away for ever and ever. But until that day arrives, we have this active adversary who prowls around like a lion. And Peter is aware of that. He's aware of that for his first century congregation. God is aware of it for the 21st century congregation. And he wants us to be aware enough to begin to build these walls so that we have hope. We have some, some fight. We have some resistance against the enemy. So let's look at these four things each in turn. First, be sober-minded. Obviously, Peter's making a contrast to somebody who's not sober-minded. In other words, somebody who's been drinking too heavily. And when you've been drinking too heavily, your, your mind gets clouded. Your reaction time slows down. One of the reasons that you don't drink and drive is because your reaction time slows down. You probably are aware of this. That what happens is if, if you're traveling 40 miles an hour and a car stops in front of you, it takes you about 60 feet to react to that. And so you be, hit the pedal and then you it, it just takes you some time. If you're under the influence of alcohol, it takes you twice that long to react. So your reaction times slow down. Your, your, your thinking gets clouded. And Peter's saying, we've got a, an adversary. He's like a roaring lion. He's going to sneak up on you. So you've got to have clear thinking. You have to have a, a quick response available. And so we don't want anything clouding our mind. Well, alcohol clouds the mind of the driver. And my question is, what, what clouds the mind of a believer or an unbeliever? What, what, causes, what could cause us to think unclearly? And, of course, there's lots of answers to this, but I, I think the answer probably is found just in the verses that surround it. That's the best way to find an answer is uh, look at verse 6. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Number one, humble yourselves. 
Number two, cast your anxieties, cast your fears on to God because he cares for you. Be sober minded. So I think two things that we can say for sure create clouds in our thinking is pride and fear. We don't humble ourselves. We, we think too much of ourselves. We have problems with pride. We, we think too much of our opinions and we think too much of our conclusions. And so pride can deceive you into wrong conclusions. And especially, I don't know if this happens with women, but it definitely happens with men. Pride has deceived you into a wrong conclusion. And then you find out that conclusion is wrong. And then what do you do? Pride makes you hold on to a wrong decision, even when you know it's a wrong decision. Why? Because I'm so prideful. I can't be wrong in an argument with my wife. So I've got to swing it around some way that I'm right. All the women said, Amen. <laughs> you see, you, you have a conclusion. You think it's right. But you, you, you have too much thought that in your own mind, your own ability. And then when you find out it's wrong, pride causes you to keep holding on to it, even though you know it can be wrong. Pride can make you think that this whole business about the devil is antiquated. I mean, that's fine. I mean, 2,000 years ago, those people weren't very smart. But we're smart now. And we don't, we don't believe in that kind of stuff. That's the, the old stuff. This is the new way. And I would say that the Bible says that, that Satan has blinded the mind of the unbeliever. And if that's the way you think, I'd say your mind is blinded to reality. Pride, like it did for Peter, can lead you to underestimating the strength of your adversary and uh, overestimating your own strength. Remember when that happened for Peter? Peter's in the upper room. Jesus is saying, hey, this is the time. This is what's going to happen. They're, they're coming to get me. They're going to put me to death. But, but be of good courage. And Peter steps out and says, hey, even if all these other people, even if they all run away, I, I alone am going to have the strength to stand. See, he's overestimating his own strength. And then Jesus says, oh, Peter, <laughs> Satan is going to sift you. See, he's underestimating that there's really an adversary and he's way overestimating his ability to beat the adversary. So pride is something that clouds our mind. Fears cloud the mind. Instead of casting our anxiety onto God, we, we hold on to our fears. And when you hold on to your fears, what you find out is that fear takes hold of you. And you don't cast your anxiety. You don't hand it off to the mighty hand of God. Instead, you take it into your very feeble hands. You trust your own hands. You, you have fear, so you attempt to live a life with everything in your control. And when you take control, you get devoured. Fear leads to panic. Panic leads to poor judgment. You scatter, you make poor decisions, little realizing that you're driving yourself into a greater danger. So pride and fear, how have they clouded your mind? 
Is there some way you're exaggerating your ability, your knowledge, your opinion, your conclusions? Are you downplaying the adversary and that he exists or downplaying his power? Are you someone who's always trying to take control? You just don't really trust in the mighty hand of God, so you don't really cast your anxiety on Him. What you want God to do is just come in and help draw your conclusions. God, this is my anxiety, and I know you don't want me to be anxious, so if you would just do this, then we wouldn't be anxious anymore. Well, that's you being in control. Second. First wall, be sober-minded. Consider what's clouding your mind. Second, be watchful to, to stay alert, to wake up. Without a doubt, Peter is thinking of what? Again, in the garden, the moment where Jesus says, Hey, now is the time. I, I've got to have the, the mighty men come in, the men who can pray, the men when it's dark aren't going to fall asleep. And I've gotten my three main guys out of the twelve. I've got Peter, James, and John. These are the guys who've seen things nobody else has seen. They've done things nobody else has done. And right at this critical moment, guys, I need you to, to overcome your flesh and I need you to stay awake. And would you just for a moment pray on my behalf and what do these three guys do? They fall asleep. And Jesus comes to me and says, Peter, you're the one of the, even of, of the three, you're the one. Peter, watch. Pray so that you not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the, the flesh is weak. The Apostle Paul, in a different way, says it the same, 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So, so run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training, but they do it to get a crown that will not last. But we're doing it to get a crown that will last forever. So, so I'm not running aimlessly. I'm not fighting like I'm boxing the air. No, I'm beating my body and I'm making it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself won't be disqualified for the prize. <clears throat> I beat my body. I, I beat my body because I know my flesh is weak. I use this illustration. I think it was a couple of years ago somewhere around Easter. And my question was, are you an easy out? And so I remember when I was maybe fourth grade playing baseball. And we had, you know, our little league team. And I could play football all day. but And I could hit guys that were my size or bigger or smaller. It didn't matter. I never thought about it. But I just didn't want that baseball to hit me. I just didn't. I mean... It hurt when it hit you. I'd gotten hit before, and I just didn't want to get hit by the baseball. You don't have any pads on or anything. So I'm up there, and, of course, I'm looking down, you know, the pitcher. He's my age, so he's not. he can't control his fastball, right? And so I, I, the, when he winds up, this is what I do. So if I swing and he throws it to where I'd previously be standing, I might make contact with the ball. But if he throws it anywhere near the plate, I'm not going to make contact. 
Well, that became obvious after a couple of bats. And so when you get up and you're in Little League Baseball, they're always razzing, you know, the guy who's at the, at, at, in the box. So here I am, all the parents on the other side, because Little League Baseball parents, sorry, Little League Baseball parents here, but they are rabid fans for their team. And the whole half of the cheering section, the dugout, Mr. Phillips comes up, and what do they say? He's an easy out. And he was an easy out. And my question to you is, because of your flesh, are you an easy out? When it comes time to really step in the box and really be the person that, right at the moment when prayer needs to happen, right at the moment when, when God needs somebody to stand in that gap, right at that moment, not in an easy moment, but right at that moment, are you an easy out? Because your flesh, your, your, your physical body, your emotional makeup draws you away. And because you haven't really disciplined your flesh, when, when I need somebody, God says, to step up, you, I know you want to, but, but you haven't disciplined yourself. You're not able to. You're, you're too emotionally insecure. Your, your body's physically not ready to do something difficult. So you can't stay alert. You're not watchful. Number three, resist him firm in your faith. The Greek resist to stand against. You gotta, you gotta stand up. You take, gotta take a stand. In France in the 18th century, the Protestants at that point were called Huguenots. And they were persecuted for their faith. Some were killed, some of them were imprisoned. And in 729, a 15-year-old girl, Marie Durand, her brother was holding a Protestant worship service in their house. And they came and said to him, he was eventually killed, and to her, you can't do this anymore, and they refused. So this 15, 15, she's a sophomore, she says, well, I, I, can't refu I can't do that. And they said, okay, we're going to lock you and a bunch of other women up in a tower, like a lighthouse, a stone tower. It's called the Tower of Constance, and you can go and see it today. Boiling hot in the summer. Ice cold in the winter. And she stayed there for 16 years. Until they came to her and these other women and said, you know, we'll offer you your freedom. Now she's 31 years old. You just can't have Protestant worship anymore. What would you say? Mm. She said, I can't do that. So for 22 more years, a total of 38 years, she lived in a tower, stone tower. She became a spiritual leader of the other women prisoners there. She, she nursed people who were sick. She wrote letters of encouragement. She read psalms. She helped people sing. Imagine doing that for 38 years. So from 15 to 53, she spends half or more than half of her life in a stone tower. 
And finally, 38 years later, they let everyone go. And they walked into this tower, I guess to clean it out, and they saw a one-word slogan scratched into the stone that the women had adopted. The one word, resist. Resist. I wonder how many times they had to re-scratch it in the 38 years. How many times they ran their hand across it in 38 years. You've got to resist. You've got to stand up. You have to take a stand. And my question, if you're in high school, if you're in college, if, if you're somewhere around 15 or 16, and, and, and you go to school or you go to college, and somebody asks you to give up something that the whole world says, it's really not that big of a deal. Everybody's doing this. Do you have the strength to stand at that point? Could you do it for 38 years? Could you really give up your life and just say, no, I can take a stand? I wonder if you're a parent here and you have a child, whatever age, are you building in that kind of strength to this child? Because that child, whether they're 2 or they're 10 or they're 15, they're going to have to resist at some point. They will have to take their stand against all of their friends at some moment. And are you building in now for that moment to happen when they're 15 or 20? It will, it will happen. This is, this is the kind of fiber, this is the kind of steel that Peter understands is going to be necessary for this first century church. He's pleading with his people. We have to have people that have a steel backbone so that when the authorities come and say, you know the lions, they devour people, that's where you're going. You have to be able to say, I can go there for Christ. And the question is, can, can you do that? 400 years ago at the Reformation, it took people of this kind of fiber of Marie Duran to say, I can resist. And now today, as we watch a community, as we watch a nation get devoured, as we watch families get devoured, what's, what's required? It's not to look at the politics or look into the culture and say, well, that's the problem, that's the problem. No, it's to look inside. And say, can you, you're, you're the church, we're the church, can, can you take a stand? Can you just scratch over and over in the stone of your mind? I'm going to resist. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go in that direction. I'm not going to say yes to those things. Chronicles says this, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that God may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. For most of us, July or August creates some space, maybe a vacation, maybe a long weekend. And my question for you today is, what, 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 what's the condition of your walls are, are you are you sober minded? Are you thinking clearly or somehow pride or fear gotten in the mix and and, and it's caused you to do things that you really shouldn't? You're, you're underestimating the adversary, you're overestimating yourself. Maybe you're just not alert. 
You're not watchful. You haven't trained your body. So really, you're an easy out. Satan's not particularly worried about you because if it means the cost of comfort, it means some getting up early. If it means memorizing something, uh, hey, I'm an easy out. I don't I'm not good at that. Or maybe you just need to work on your walls of resistance. Just causes you to say, hey, this is the line I can go no further and I can take the consequences for that. I'll close by just mentioning the final one, which could be an entire sermon. Verse 10, hope. Look at this. After you have suffered a little while. I wish that line wasn't in there. I mean, if I were like writing for Peter, I said, let's scratch this out. I mean, let's, you know, a couple thousand years from now, people aren't going to like this line. So let's just say God is going to uh, restore. I like that. Talked to somebody recently who believed that Jesus died for sin and suffering. That's not true. So they thought if you were suffering, then there was something wrong. I would say God's using suffering to form you, to make you something right. And it says it here as clearly as we can have it. After you have suffered, you will suffer. But the hope is the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Amen. But your hope has to be grounded in something that's eternal. And that's cross. If it's grounded in your own comfort, it's grounded in your own finances, if it's grounded in your own health, if it's grounded in a life that you want to have, that's going to be shaky ground. That's always going to be shifting. And Peter says, let's make sure here right at the very end when you suffer, you make sure that your faith is grounded in the eternal glory of Christ, which will never end. And because you've hoped on that, And it's brought you through this suffering that may be for some time. He will restore. He will establish. That's our hope. And he knows that we, like sheep, are going to go astray. And so he wants us to remember in communion what he's done. So even though you may not be the perfect man or the perfect woman, and you're not, you know that there is a perfect man who has died for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we are taking some common elements like the blood of Christ represented by this juice or the body of Christ represented by the bread. And we're asking that something divine happens. People will come up who are suffering now. People will come up that are not sober-minded, haven't stayed alert are an easy out. People, maybe they've lost hope. Would you take these common elements and use them for uncommon grace? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.